My guest today is Charles Pohl, Margaret Thatcher's most trusted and closest political advisor. Charles, you read history at New College Oxford. Um, who taught you history? Well, a series of different tutors. Uh, one was a famous medievalist called Harry Bell, who taught me about the Venerable Bede and similar events. But my main tutor was Raymond Carr, a notorious figure in Oxford at the time. He was a wild <laughs> man. They had all sorts of escapades. He wrote a history of fox hunting, was a historian of Spain. And um, finally, when I was in number 10 Downing Street, we, we got him knighted. So the way of repaying your tutor for his efforts is to, is to have him made a sir. He was a magnificent uh, historian, needless to say, and also wrote that fantastic uh, autobiography um, about, the, about his friend who murdered his friend's mother. Do you remember that? Did you ever read that? Superb I've, uh, book. I have a dim memory of it. It doesn't really surprise me. <laughs> no, 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 exactly. Uh, have you often um, uh, felt the weight of history on your shoulders? You know, you you started your diplomatic career in the Foreign Office fighting the Cold War, obviously, and you later became uh, Margaret Thatcher's pretty much most trusted aide for a very long time, eight years or so. What um, Did you feel when you were doing these things that uh, history would be would be watching you would be judging you later on well you know i grew up with history i started my education in the cathedral choir school at canterbury under the shadow literally under the shadow 50 yards from this great gothic cathedral from the 10th the 11th and 10th century and then went on to the King School in Canterbury, the oldest school in Britain, founded in 597, and on to Oxford, and then to the Foreign Office, and then to number 10. So I've lived in a world of history uh, all my life, um, perhaps almost too much. Um, so in that sense, feeling the weight of history was quite a common thing to do, because it was just all around me. Um, but yes, there were certainly times at Number 10 Downing Street in Margaret Thatcher where one felt the weight of history. Crucial decisions about the Cold War, about trying to build a new relationship with Gorbachev as uh, the new face in the Soviet Union, change the whole outlook of East-West relations, relations with Europe. She was determined to get our money back from Europe. That was a classic battle. Um, so several times over in my experience there, I felt the weight of history, at least on her. And since I was always in her meetings, I, I think I, perhaps I shared a bit of the sensation of the weight. And of course, we're in the House of Lords now, and every brick of that building is suffused with history, isn't it? I suppose it is. There are an awful lot of dates from the 19th century rather than from the 12th century, which is where I started. So <laughs> I, I well, we've got Westminster on. Hall. That's I pretty ancient. <laughs> yes, well, yes, you're quite right. But, um... Um, you uh, became first secretary in, in Washington in uh, 1971. It was the time of Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, the latter of whom, of course, became a great um, and good friend of yours. Uh, tell us about about that. What was what was uh, Nixon's Washington like? Well, of course, with a lot of my time in Nixon's Washington, he was um, really fraught with the Watergate scandal and then um, all the hearings and so on, the Senate committee. So it was a pretty tense time to be there. But for the diplomatic side, it was also a time of considerable achievements. The opening to China, of course, being the, uh, the most important, but the 
bringing to an end, the prompt end, the 1973 Middle East War and so on. I was lucky enough to get to, to meet uh, Henry Kissinger early on in my time there. Indeed, I still have a vivid memory of my first meeting with him in his White House office, where um, I was pretty young and um, inexperienced. And he started to talk, talk to me about something and then was called away by President Nixon. So I was left on my own. And his kindly secretary stuck her head round the door and offered me a cup of coffee, which I gratefully accepted. And when Henry Kissinger came back, he sat down and resumed his, uh, I think it was a diatribe, and, um, <laughs> and somebody pointed at my coffee and said, who on earth gave you that? I said, well, well, Dr. Kissinger, your, your secretary gave it to me. Great mistake, he said. Once you give people coffee, you can't get rid of them. <laughs> so I felt suitably put, put in my place. But I do admire him, <clears throat> always have admired him as a man of quite extraordinary strategic vision, his extraordinary productivity also as a historian and author and other things, and a man who won the Nobel Peace Prize for actually having a really considerable diplomatic achievement. So I think he's been one of the great figures of our age, one of the few people you could mention in the same breath as a, as a Bismarck or a Talleyrand. And, um, and to have got to 100 and be as active still in diplomacy, in debate as he is, is just quite remarkable. You caught the um, eye of Margaret Thatcher when you were at the Bonn Embassy, um, mm. the West German Embassy in 1976. And uh, and your famously charismatic and beautiful and very attractive Italian wife, Carla, um, became friends with Margaret Thatcher, didn't she? Yes, they, they, they rather strangely got on well. I think Margaret Thatcher was not always very good with foreigners. And at the beginning, I remember, whenever she was hosting a reception in number 10 and was standing next to some visiting president also or someone like that. When my wife came through the receiving line, she would say, and this is my private secretary's wife. She's Italian, you know, as though <laughs> she was liable to leap onto a table or dance or something. But, uh, <laughs> yes, they did get on well. They liked clothes. Margaret Thatcher was very keen on clothes and shoes. There was a very feminine side to her in that way. It was a relief for her, I think, from all the strains of office. And by 1979, once she'd become prime minister, um, the negotiations were underway over the future of Zimbabwe, um, former Rhodesia. Yes. Um, and, uh, and tell us about um, how she, her, her sense of the foreign office and what she liked and what she didn't like in, 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 uh, in diplomats. Yes, well, institutionally, she had a great suspicion of the foreign office. Um, she always used to like to tell a story from the Second World War of the, uh, um, the man going down Whitehall in the blackout and asking a policeman, which side is the Foreign Office on? And the policeman says, the other side. Exactly, she would say. <laughs> she admired and got on well with a lot of the senior individuals in it, but she wouldn't necessarily associate them with the institution. The institution was, I think, irredeemably damned in her eyes as a bunch of wet softies who wanted to reach agreement with everyone rather than stand up for British interests. Unfair, but there you are. Civil servants are paid to take that. <laughs> she didn't like diplomats being too silent, did she? And, they, and, and that worked to your advantage, didn't it? Well, I think it did, because somebody had warned me that um, when she saw candidates for jobs in number 10, um, she would interview them. She would talk incessantly herself. And then when the interview was over, she would say, well, he was no good. He never said anything. So I, I mean, we tipped off with this. When I got to my turn to have a 
session with that. I talked incessantly myself. Whereupon she remarked, well, that won't do. You never stop talking. So uh, <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't really win, anyway. But she, she took me on and I stayed there and unprecedented for a long time. And, uh, and it was a, a remarkable ride to be on, really, because so much happened. Well, that's right. You were, I mean, from 1979 to 82, you were in Brussels, but then you became, at a very young age, I think you were under 40, weren't you? Um, the number 10, you moved to number 10 as Foreign Affairs Private Secretary. And then, of course, you stayed, you were only supposed to stay there for, for how long was it? And how long did you find two, two it? Years was the, two years was the norm. I think I was there about eight. And that must have had an effect on your, on your career in general, because, um, uh, you know, you, under normal circumstances, if you had gone there for two years, then you'd have come back and become an ambassador and so on. Whereas if you're at number 10 for eight years and closely uh, connected with a prime minister as, uh, as formidable as Margaret Thatcher, what effect did that have on your career? Well, pretty destructive, really. Um, and I'll tell you why. Um, Margaret Thatcher didn't ever like large delegations or large groups. When she went to visit some foreign uh, American president, let's say, she didn't want anyone with her except me as a sort of appendage uh, to remember the conversation and be able to produce some account of it. Uh, and of course, that doesn't necessarily endear you to the high and mighty foreign office officials who, uh, who think it, that, was, that was their job. Um, and she didn't have much time for them. Um, they tried to get me removed after I'd been there a few years, but um, when she rather theatrically said, if I have to get rid of him, I'll resign myself which is not exactly very probable <laughs> or constitutional, but nonetheless, it shook them to their roots. But I decided by that stage that this was the best job I was ever going to have in government service. And so when I, when the time came for me to go, I would go and do something quite different. And let's look at some of the things you've had to deal with, because they were massive issues mm. of, the, of the 1980s. Um, the, um, the struggle at Fontainebleau over... Um, the return of the amounts of money that um, previous mm. governments had agreed to pay to um, the, what became the European Union. Tell us about that a bit. Well, there was a struggle to get our money back, which lasted from the very first days of her prime ministership. And various ministers were dispatched to Brussels to argue the case, usually came back with a resounding no from Brussels, whereupon they were dressed down in her study and uh, sent back to try again. Uh, and to be quite honest, she drove the European Union or the European Community, as it was still being called, absolutely mad by insisting on raising the subject at every meeting. And she was rather snubbed by Helmut Schmidt, the then German Chancellor, and by President Giscard, the French President. But that didn't deter her. Margaret Thatcher, one of her great strengths was she was unembarrassable. She could say things that no man could possibly say to a room full of full of, um, of men, um, she, she, she just went on and on. And by the time we got to um, um, uh, sorry, 1984, um, she sent in that we were close. And there was a, a final meeting chaired by President Mitterrand where um, she demanded and got in the end 66.7% of our money back, which is Pretty good result. It gave us billions back, literally billions over the years, which we still get some of. Subsequent British prime ministers were not that good at defending it, so we lost some, but uh, <laughs> really it was remarkable. But Margaret Thatcher's dealing with foreigners was, was never straightforward. I mean, and she never necessarily liked the ones she was supposed to like. For instance, 
In Europe, she should have liked Helmut Kohl because he was a Christian Democratic conservative and so on, but she found him a bit too rumbustious and too German. And uh, Mitterrand as a socialist, she shouldn't have liked, but she did. Uh, I must say, I do recall an alarming incident. We'd been able to see President Mitterrand. And after the meeting, which was quite tough, Mitterrand suggested that he and she should stroll around the gardens of the Elysee Palace. So out we went into the sunshine and I sat happily on a bench while they disappeared around the corner. To my alarm, about two minutes later, they came back and Mitterrand was clutching a blood-stained handkerchief to his hand. My first thought was, <laughs> my God, he's not really bitten with that shit. And it, it turned out they'd encountered a new puppy that Mitterrand had, which had jumped up and bitten. But I think my, my, my instinctive reaction probably says it all. Didn't he say something about how she had the eyes of Caligula and the lips of Marilyn Monroe or some other no, parts he, of body he, he, parts? He, he, he did say that. I don't think she found that offensive at all. No, well, you wouldn't, would you? <laughs> <laughs> the greater difficulty was Helmut Kohl. Helmut Kohl tried very hard to deal nicely with her, and she knew she ought to get on with him because of their similar, but not exactly similar, political philosophies. And um, I do recall one stage in her prime ministership, he invited her to go down and spend the weekend with him in his part of Germany, the Rhineland. Um, right there in Central Europe. And we spent a lovely day going around the villages. We had lunch at his favourite pub, where he served his favourite dish, which was tripe. And I still remember her chasing it round her plate and trying to hide it <laughs> under her fork. And we ended up in the great Romanesque cathedral in Speyer, where the tombs of the Holy Roman Emperors are down in the crypt. And we went down there. Well, she was surveying these great precursors of European Union. Um, uh, Chancellor Coe took me behind a pillar and said, look, now she has seen me in my home country, right at the very heart of Europe, surely she will realise I'm not really German, I'm European, and it's your job to convince her. So I said, okay, Mr Chancellor, I'll do my best. Um, and we, we then went off back to the airport, climbed aboard the little plane she insisted on flying around in, and she threw herself into her chair kicked off her shoes and said, Charles, that man is so German. So at that point, <laughs> I aborted my mission. There was obviously yeah. nothing to be done. But the, they did in practice work quite well together. The, the, the Hong Kong negotiations were the next big thing, weren't they? The, uh, yes. Where mm. you were, I mean, again, a very young man, but you were um, present at these meetings with Deng Xiaoping and others. Um, what, uh, what was that like? especially him, what was Deng Xiaoping like? Well, I'd say that Deng Xiaoping exuded power like no one I ever saw in my life. He was a small, almost dwarf-like figure. Uh, he sat in a big chair, his feet barely touching the ground. But there was something about him that just, as I say, exuded power. You could see even the most senior officials and ministers were very, very scared of him. And, uh, uh, he, and he had a very direct, a pithy way of expressing himself. And so their first meeting, which I was not at, their very first one, <clears throat> before I got there, she had come up with a solution for Hong Kong, which was basically now, Mr. Deng Xiaoping, don't you worry about too much about Hong Kong. Of course, sovereignty can be yours, China's, but we'll go on running it for you. To which his response was, <laughs> in that case, the PLA will be in there tomorrow. 
So that was not a great diplomatic success on her part. And over the next two years, the system was worked out of one country, two systems, um, at which he had allegedly devised originally for Taiwan, but applied to Hong Kong. And we managed to negotiate what was a very fair agreement for Hong Kong for 50 years uh, to have its very considerable degree of autonomy. Did we in our hearts believe at the time that it would really last 50 years? Well, not, not really. I mean, I think it was great that it got as far as it did before the Chinese started to bear down heavily on Hong Kong. So she did the right thing, but in the full knowledge that at the end of the day, there was nothing we could do to stop China treating Hong Kong as it wanted. Only China's own reputation internationally would affect that. And you were also the um, other person in the room when Margaret Thatcher met Ronald Reagan at uh, Camp David and talked about SDI as well, weren't you? Yes, absolutely. And um, Margaret Thatcher was torn on SDI initially, anyway, because she was a great one for believing in observing agreements. And there was a, an ABM treaty, an anti-ballistic missile treaty. There were agreements which prevented the deployment of space weapons. But she soon realized this was a really the number one issue for President Reagan. He had this dream of a non-nuclear world in which space weapons revolving around the Earth in orbit were able to shoot down nuclear missiles and so on. And that it was best to, as it were, go along with it and try and place constraints on it, which we did by negotiating what were called the four points of Camp David, which would have stopped deployment, but allowed research and so on. Um, uh, but he never gave it up. And you will recall two or three years later, he met President Gorbachev in, um, in, in Reykjavik to talk about all this. And they very, very nearly agreed on the abolition of nuclear weapons. But Gorbachev couldn't quite get himself to believe, to accept um, the, the abolition of, uh, of nuclear weapons as the condition for allowing and agreeing to Star Wars. And so luckily there was no agreement. Uh, Margaret Thatcher hearing this, it was on a Sunday, um, she rang me up, I was somewhere in the country and to come here straight away. I can feel the earth is moving under my feet. You know, we're going to lose the ability to be defended by nuclear weapons. And this was crucial to her whole strategy. And so we arranged for her to go straight over to Washington only 10 days later where she persuaded President Reagan that although, of course, it would be very nice to have a world without nuclear weapons, it wasn't actually likely to happen, that we must confirm our belief in the, in the nuclear deterrent, which he did. It didn't ever seem to matter to him too much that he, in the same sentence, almost could call for the abolition of nuclear weapons and then say they were very necessary. But she had a powerful influence on President Reagan in many fields. And I, I wouldn't want to say he, he deferred regularly to her, it would sound disrespectful, but he did accept a lot of her judgment and really regarded her as his closest ally. I've no doubt about that. And, um, and of course, the person who discovered Gorbachev before the um, United States did, as early as December 1984, she was mm. trying to build a relationship. And, and you did some of the drafting of the, of the letters that she sent to him, didn't you? Well, yes, well, more, more after she had met him. It was almost by chance that he came to see us. We had written to three of what seemed to be up and coming Soviet leaders, 
Uh, one was called Romanov, original for a Russian, of course, um, <laughs> who had been party secretary in uh, Leningrad. One was called Grishin, who was head of the trade union movement in Russia. And one was called Gorbachev, of whom we knew virtually nothing. And he was the one who answered. So he was invited. And she decided to meet him for, for the first time down in the British Prime Minister's country residence, Chekhov's, which is a very imposing country house. And uh, so down he came with his, um, with his wife. And as they came into the great hall of Chekhov's, this great several stories high hall and a vast blazing fire in the grate and so on, you could see at a glance that this was somebody totally different to previous Soviet leaders who were elderly, shuffling, surrounded by officials, speaking only from notes in their hands. Here was a man, lively, grinning, bouncing on the balls of his feet, accompanied by an elegant wife. And um, so change was in the air. And they sat down for lunch and they argued and they argued and they argued. And uh, after lunch, we sat down for the formal half hour meeting, which ended about two and a half hours later. And Gorbachev didn't have much in the way of notes. He had a few manuscript notes of his own, produced at one time a cutting from the Herald Tribune about nuclear winter as the dangers from nuclear war. And she was impressed. And when he had left and uh, her spokesman and I, she debated what we should say. She said, she said um, he's a man I can do business with. And that became the phrase, which I think in a way changed the Cold War. Because she, she then wrote to President Reagan um, or somebody had to draft a letter and she sent a letter to President Reagan saying, um, you know, you've really got to get to, you've got to meet this guy because um, he's different. And when I come over to Camp David in three weeks time, we can talk about it. Uh, and that really set in train all the changes which led to the end of the Cold War. In 1986, um, Margaret Thatcher uh, helped the, um, were allowed overflies and uh, obviously the base in Britain for the bombing of Libya. It was tremendously controversial at the time. Um, lots of people were opposed to it in uh, domestically and uh, internationally, but it, it did silence uh, Colonel Gaddafi for some time, didn't it? Can you remember that, uh, that crisis? I do very well remember it. Um, she, um, she had, of course, um, the request from the, uh, from the Reagan administration to be able to use their aircraft based in Britain to conduct the raid on Libya. And she was a little worried about it at first for two reasons. One, she was very legal in her um, conduct on these sort of matters. But secondly, virtually all the ministers she consulted um, were against it. And the request actually came in while she was at a, hosting a, a, a dinner for some visiting um, president, I can't honestly remember who. And after dinner, she sat down with our then Foreign Secretary Jeffrey Howe and Defence Secretary George Younger, and they debated it. And they decided they would send a message back to President Reagan asking a number of questions about whether there be limitations on the targets and things like that. So I was sent off to, 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 to draft the letter and get it off. So we got replies in the morning. And um, it was not, a, not an easy letter to draft, but she sent it. But then, Having slept on it, she came down the next morning to my office and sat on the desk, as she sometimes did, and said, look, I've been thinking about this overnight. We must, we must do what President Reagan asks, because that is what allies are for. 
And so she went ahead. And I think every member of her cabinet was against it, except Lord Hailsham, for the rather curious reason that he, that he said, my mother's American. Why that, why that was relevant, I'm not quite sure, but there we are. So she, she, she acted boldly, as, as she usually did, and controversial. And of course, there were some very sad consequences too for British hostages in the Lebanon. Yes, no, absolutely. But overall, it was a it was a success, wasn't it? And um, well, it was the right thing to do, and it shut up Gaddafi for a while, as you say, not yeah. permanently. Yeah. Um, another another um, area in which he was um, much misunderstood was uh, was that of um, apartheid South Africa. Um, yes. It's it seems to be sort of an axiom of the left nowadays that um, that she was a supporter of the of the Bota white minority regime, but that is not true, is it? Absolutely not true. She was she found uh, the apartheid system repulsive and immoral. Uh, but the difference was, um, others rang their hands and demonstrated and yelled and so on. She actually said these things direct to Bota's face. Um, and there's no doubt she was the only international leader of any stature at all who spoke directly to the South Africans on this, and told them they simply had to change and that Mandela must, must be freed. And um, they listened. Now, in the end, President Bota died before that came to a head, but she was actually determined to see it happen, and she did. And she stood out against sanctions on South Africa. But she thought sanctions were immoral. They would damage more than anyone else. They would damage black South Africans and reduce their livelihood and so on. So she refused to adopt them, even though the European Union wanted to adopt them, even the Americans wanted some, uh, but she, would have, she wouldn't, wouldn't have it. And what's so interesting is that when Mandela was freed, first thing he did was, pretty well exactly the first thing he did was come to Britain for a, a, a short break. And we, um, we put him up in, a, in what I think in spy, spy books is called a safe house. So that he could, um, he could, uh, he could relax. I remember being telephoned by him in late one night and said, thank the, thank the Prime Minister so much for giving me this house to rest and recuperate in. And um, I said, where is it? And he said, I don't know, it's very nice. And, uh, <laughs> but more seriously, a few weeks later, he insisted on coming to see her in Downing Street to the fury of the Labour Party and the anti-apartheid movement who thought that yeah, he would find her absolutely intolerable, not at all. And um, he put on a remarkable performance. I mean, he was uh, he was capable of sitting motion, motionless for long periods, listening to her. But obviously the training of being in prison all those years had given him this capacity to listen. And when he talked, it was sense. It was talk about reconciliation in South Africa. His economic views were perhaps a little primitive because they had been formed by the LSE in the 1940s. But in general, he was a man who inspired. In fact, I would say that the two men I met in those Downing Street years who most made the highest impression on me, greatest impression, were Deng Xiaoping and Nelson Mandela. Um, you mentioned Margaret Thatcher's worries over Reykjavik. Um, and she had worries over the fall of the Berlin Wall as well, um, didn't she, early on? Was, is it fair to say that she was quite late to spot that communism was in its death spiral, but that she was nonetheless one of the heroes of the end of communism, along with Ronald Reagan and Lech Wałęsa and John Paul II? And so on? Yes, I think that's, that is certainly fair to say. 
Um, she did not, she, she, I remember her saying explicitly to me that she never expected to see the end of communism in her lifetime. That was probably the general view amongst all European heads of government and indeed American ones too. I don't think anyone foresaw it, and certainly not happening as quickly. Her reservations about the fall, well, not about the fall of the wall, which she of course welcomed very, very warmly, but about the subsequent debate on German unification was that she was worried about two things. One is if German unification was pressed too rapidly, President Gorbachev would be defeated by hardliners in the Soviet Union, and we would lose this opportunity, which she had played such a big role in building up, to have a, a, the Soviet Union led by a Gorbachev with reforming ideas and so on. So she wanted to be very cautious about reunification. And secondly, perhaps less respect, respectively, she was worried about the size of a reunified Germany and its weight, its specific gravity within the European Union. She failed to become a sort of German-dominated club. Uh, and she was therefore keen to see reunification conducted on a progressive basis, starting with a confederation of the two Germanies, leading on to a federation of the two Germanies, leading eventually to reunification. She couldn't be against eventual unification because like every other world leader, she had always subscribed to Germany's unification. But she did have these reservations that made her unpopular in Germany and difficult to the rest of the Europeans to deal with. At the end of the day, because President Bush cast his lot in favor of rapid unification, she had no alternative but to go along. And by this stage, you'd morphed, hadn't you, from a foreign um, policy advisor into a general advisor, you clearly by that stage weren't going back to the Foreign Office. You were advising on cabinet reshuffles. I mean, that's far outside your Foreign Office brief, isn't it? And um, did you have regrets that your, your career as a diplomat was over? No, I always thought that um, it was bound to happen from the way that things had evolved in Downing Street because of her particular character and nature. And to be honest, I never dreamed particularly of being becoming an ambassador. I, what I enjoyed was foreign policy. I enjoyed the, the debates and the forming of foreign policy rather, rather more than the implementation of it. So no, I thought that, as I said a little earlier, I'd had the best possible job um, right at the heart of government. And um, yeah. in terms of official standing, I was nowhere. I was a pretty minor official, but um, the, the reality of it was, um, was so much, very much more. So no, I didn't. I didn't objected. And then you wrote your impertinent letter, didn't you, to her in uh, in <laughs> 1988? She'd won a third um, victory, a landslide general election, and uh, but um, you decided that you thought that it was uh, it was time for her. You, you mentioned earlier that she she wanted to go on and on, um, and uh, and you decided that it was not best for her to go on and on. What? Um, well, it's uh, tell us about true, that letter say. first of all. Perfectly true what you say. And what she uh, did about the letter as well, because I think that's very interesting. I, by 1988, I reached the conclusion, well, several conclusions today. One, that her health was beginning to suffer a bit from the strains and stresses, uh, and she was getting more and more tetchy and difficult with her colleagues and so on. Um, and I thought that having won a remarkable, extraordinary, unprecedented third consecutive election, she should not then set her mind on going on forever. So I did write to her on a very personal basis and said, look, having seen the effect on your health, having seen the effect on, on your character, 
I think we should beginning to plan now on maybe going on for a year or two, but certainly not seeing yourself as going for a fourth term. And um, I, you know, I dropped it in her, 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 her office and so on, and, and um, really heard, heard no more about it. Um, um, she dropped occasional remarks which indicated clearly she was ready, but she didn't, didn't say either who the hell do you think you are writing to me in these terms, <laughs> nor did she say, um, you know, I disagree with what you say. But it was also partly a reflection that I think that 10 years of a top job like that is about as much as the human nature can take. Um, and it's very unwise to go on too long. I thought Tony Blair, for instance, who did stay 10 years and decided that was the time to go, got it right. Did your, did your brother suggest um, that? Was he who, was, uh, who held a, yeah. uh, the chief of staff job for Tony Blair quite extraordinarily? I don't know whether really. he one of the figures who, uh, who told him that? Um, well, he may have been. I don't know. I, wouldn't, I, I didn't ask him. Anyway, I personally forgot about this letter until the, um, I think it was the BBC, managed to trace it in her private archives and uh, suddenly handed it to me in the middle of a, middle of an interview like this and asked me whether I read it aloud, which <laughs> I did to my growing embarrassment. Uh, well, <laughs> you're my pleased. I, <laughs> I think I'm not going to jump anything like that onto you. I think you uh, still today think it was the right decision, the right advice. What was Dennis like as a stabilising factor? Dennis was a marvellous support to Margaret Thatcher, so different in character. Um, yeah, he was 10 years older, he was a, a moderately wealthy man, he uh, had a successful career in business, so he could devote full time to, um, to being her husband and supportive. But he was valuable in more senses than that. One in particular was Dennis represented the, the voice of saloon bar England, you know, the golf club, golf players who gathered in the saloon bar and the pubs and so on. He, he shared their views and he represented their views. And so he was a, a very vital source of intelligence to her. What, what she would call my people were thinking uh, on policy. And that was definitely a, a great help to her. And um, secondly, whenever she got real, really in the tears and was you know, really sort of exploding in all directions, Dennis was the one who could calm her down and say, uh, come on, Thatcher, you've got to, you've got to uh, settle down. This is, this is all going too far. And she, he would be the one who could get her back under control. So for the rest of us, he was invaluable in that sense too. He had a quite a tough time because, especially when Margaret Thatcher was having some big speech written, we would have to gather in her flat in the evening to hack away at this speech. And then she would insist on giving us dinner, which meant she took a she took a cottage pie out of the freezer and warmed it up, and we had to eat it. I can no longer look at cottage pies now. <laughs> but anyway, we would sit around the table having our cottage pie until about 10 o'clock, and then she would announce it was time to get on with the speech, and Dennis will clear away. So we all marched off into the study to go on with the speech, before Dennis was left, left clearing the table and washing up after, uh, after the dinner. So he, he certainly paid a price for his role. <laughs> Um, and of course, in her time, the Prime Minister had no domestic help at all in her flat. She personally hired in a cleaning lady once or twice a week to come and hoover and dust, but that was not provided by government. That really is extraordinary. Extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah.
we take these things to extreme lengths. Um, you were kept on by John Major after the fall of Margaret Thatcher, partly because there was a war, wasn't there? The Gulf War was going Well, the Gulf on. War was about to start. It was about, about to start. To start. And, yes. you, and you knew everybody, um, in, in, and John Major didn't. And so it was obviously helpful for him um, to have you by his side because, you know, there wasn't a world leader who hadn't in yes, no, interacted. I didn't want to exaggerate my role at all, but it, um, it was certainly true that I had a lot of connections in Washington, particularly with uh, with Scowcroft, President Bush's uh, national security advisor, and with Colin Powell, his predecessor, who had installed a direct line between my desk and the American national security advisor's desk, so we could just pick up the phone and talk to each other, which was an invaluable thing to have, particularly as the Gulf War got closer, uh, and so on. And um, but I mean, I, I give full marks to John Major for his handling of how Britain became involved in the war. This was, of course, entirely unlike the Blair Gulf War. This was a this was a just war to right the invasion of Kuwait by Iraq, and uh, there was no really moral argument you could hold against it. It was the right thing to do, uh, and he handled that very well and brought British political and public opinion along. Maybe the technical aspects of the war was stranger to him. <laughs> My abiding memory was when he went to the Washington, he'd hardly ever been in Washington really before. Um, and we were going to helicopter from the White House to Camp David to have some discussions up there. But it was snowing heavily, decided the helicopter couldn't, um, couldn't fly. So we would drive and we climbed into the back of the presidential limousine with the president and John Major facing forward and Brent Scowcroft and me on jump seats facing backwards. And that is where the Gulf War was started. They decided on the date and how it would start and everything. And of course, the problem was I felt increasingly sick as we swerved around through the snow, traveling backwards while trying to, trying to, trying to take part in the discussion and at least keep a decent record of it. <laughs> Such are the duties of a private secretary. Um, since then, you've been a businessman in um, the United States and uh, China, of course. And uh, and recently, um, you've taken part in the uh, in the celebrations of Henry Kissinger's hundredth birthday. And that mm. um, asks that sort of. I'd, I'd like to ask a question about the uh, the great man mm. and woman theory of history, because you've worked. Uh, with a great woman, you mm. have um, also, of course, uh, your great friends with a great man in uh, Henry Kissinger. To what mm. extent, uh, historically, do you think great decisions are taken by um, uh, 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 great women, men and women? To which, to what extent, is uh, history the um, accumulation of what T. S. Eliot called vast impersonal forces, which essentially? Uh, individuals don't have that much um, power over? Well, I'm very much on the side of the great individual in that argument, I have to say. It, um, I think the, the, they are crucial to history. When you trace it through the whole way, um, you, you see that. The great, you can sometimes interpret great, force, great forces at work sort of post hoc. But at the time, it's the individuals who really make the difference and make the changes and bring them about. It's not they're being propelled by some invisible force. Um, they don't have an agenda determined by some invisible force. They are taking red-blooded decisions to make changes and to, to do things which alter the course of history. And so I'm unreservedly on the side of 
of the great individuals rather than the impersonal forces. And uh, I imagine you are too, uh, judging by the biographies you, you write. I most certainly, I, I wouldn't write yes. books about Churchill and Napoleon unless I thought that, they, that it, was, uh, it was sort of worthwhile way to spend one's uh, life. Uh, now, two questions that I always ask all of my guests. Firstly, what book, what history book or biography are you reading at the moment? Well, you know, I have, I, I, I live in two places. I live in London and I live in Rome, where my wife uh, lives, so I commute between the two. And I keep a book in each, a current book in each place. So I'm really, would have to say, I'm reading two. One is um, Simon Seabag Montefiore's marvellous book about the family and history which traces the you know, family life right from the earliest times. I mean, it, it's everything from, from Neanderthals to, um, to, to Trump and uh, all uh, points in between. And that's the sort of book you can put down and return to a week later and so on. But I'm it, so it really pleased means... you mentioned that because we've had Simon on this show, on my oh, podcast, you? talking about that book, in fact. So that's, right. uh, that's well, a it's nice a fascinating, uh, one. It's a fascinating and what, book. And yeah. what are you reading in your, in your other home? Well, the other thing I'm writing, I'm reading the um, um, history of the first British embassy to China uh, in 1793, in your great friend George III's time. Yes, McCartney. McCartney. Ah, uh, And they wrote an enormously detailed account of China, which is, of course, very largely unknown at the time. There had been Jesuit missionaries and so on who had come back with partial accounts. But although McCartney's mission, whose purpose was to try to establish a relationship with the Chinese empire and the emperor and to get greater trading rights for British merchants to, to sell their stuff and so on, although that side of it actually failed in the end, uh, they, they, we learned a thousand percent more than we'd ever known before about China, about you know, the agriculture, the structure of society, everything of that sort. It was all meticulously noted down by a man called George um, Staunton, who was as well the deputy to it. And it gives you a very clear picture, first of what China was like at the time, but secondly, strangely, about how little China has changed. And that really communism is a thin veneer on the surface of this, how Chinese civilization has always been. It's always been authoritarian. Um, it has always had its violent aspects. It's always had a disdain for foreigners. And the emperor, remember, didn't think we had anything much to offer. China knew everything that was worth knowing anyway. Uh, and that those attitudes are still very apparent in the, in the China of today. So one shouldn't really be surprised. If you, if you study Chinese history, you can find the roots of almost everything you can see and know about China in the modern world. I also ask everybody, what's your favourite counterfactual? What's the what if that, uh, that you kind of... I did warn you about that. I warn all my guests that, uh, that they're coming. What's, the, uh, what's yours? So, uh, I thought of it. Uh, my counterfactual was this. What would have happened if Margaret Thatcher had been run over by a bus in her prime? Oh, got it. When you say in her prime, what are we talking? We're talking sort of before the 1987 um, general election. Well, any, yeah, any time, let's say, in the earlier 80s. Now, that question was asked at the time. It was asked of Peter Carrington, her, her, her foreign minister at the time. And he said, shook his head and said, the bus would never dare. <laughs> probably, probably the best answer. But, but if it had it, dared, oh, my yeah. gosh. Well, tell, well what, what do you well, think I mean, happened? Well, I think, I mean, obviously, the, I think the momentum of change and economic reform in our country would have been lost because there was no other such strong and dominating figure. I think the risk of having slipped back into old-style labour 
would have been enhanced. Um, we probably would never have had the Blair Revolution and the uh, changing of the Labour Party to something closer to a social, social democrat party. I don't think Britain would have played the role in the world at the end of the Cold War that it played under Margaret Thatcher, because you know, her personality, her strength, her leadership was so, so vital to all those changes. So I think it would have been a, a disaster for Britain. Now, of course. And there'd, there'd also be a lot of uh, Falkland Islanders speaking Spanish um, now. Well, absolutely. If she hadn't regained, regained them before the bus uh, did its dirty deed. Um, so it would have been, I think, would have changed Britain's future very, very considerably. So that that was the one that occurred to me when I pondered on your your question. It, it's a it's a it's a very good one. No, Britain would almost un, undoubtedly have been a much uh, worse place by the uh, by the nineteen nineties. Very true. Um, uh, Charles Pohl, you are so kind. Thank you very much indeed for giving us so much of your time and uh, and and your wisdom. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Andrew. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. Thank you to Lord Pohl. On the next Secrets of Statecraft, I'll be talking to Tony Abbott, the former Prime Minister of Australia. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.